0: Have your seat. If you will turn in your copy of scripture to Matthew chapter two. As you're turning there, and the kids are leaving the room. My daughter's turned seven this month. Oh yeah, it's it's hitting me. I don't like it. Um she keeps getting older. She's my youngest. And so it brings us all kinds of weird emotions, and I don't deal well with emotions, so um, we, uh, I, I just follow my wife's lead on most things involving our children, um, but uh, we, she found this really cool museum that we we're going to go to to celebrate her birthday, and so we go to this museum, it's like an hour and a half away, and it was really cool. Like, I'm usually not very impressed with those types of things, but I was like, this is actually really fun, this is really neat, because um, I'm selfish like that, it's cool and neat for me. Um, but... We're there, we go through the interior and like there's all this stuff and then there's this massive playground out in like the central area, outdoor playground that the building kind of half circles around. And so we go out there, the kids are on the playground but like it doesn't take them long to look beyond the playground and there's this massive ropes course It just looks really exciting. It's really high up there. And so they immediately are really excited, ecstatic about this. Like, forget the playground. Like, we got to walk over there and see what that's all about. So we walk over there, and I'm seeing there's the little height bar thing. Like, you got to be this tall to participate and stuff. So I'm thinking, like, "Uh, slim chance. Like, that's going to be my out because they're going to want more money for that. Uh, So we walk over there, and uh, both my son and my daughter, like, they're high, they're tall enough, and I'm like, they're just like, they're just getting more and more ecstatic. Like, this is so exciting, we can do this. I'm like, well, we gotta see how much it costs and stuff. So we, we go into where you get tickets to do this extra thing, and they're like, it's $8. I'm like, I can actually stomach that. That's, a, that's a, that sounds like an awesome deal. So for $8, yes, we will do the ropes course. And so we get out there, and, like, you're harnessing up all this stuff. You're getting all the carabiners ready and all this stuff. And um, as we're getting ready, I'm just watching my kids. They're both just, like, so full of joy. Like, it's so exciting to look up and see this. And, like, we're going to be up there. We're going to do this thing. And they're just, like, you can see, like, the nervous energy. But it's, like, full of joy. Like, it's, it's exciting. And we clip in, and we start to go up. And the first thing, like, it's kind of, like oh, this is a little strange. Like, the ropes move and stuff. And, like, you're strapped down. So I'm telling them, like, if you need extra help, just like hold on to that rope that's above you because it's clipped in. It's so, like that's like another anchor point to help you kind of keep from falling and all this stuff. And even if you do fall, like it's gonna catch you. You're gonna be okay. So we're going up and like it's, it's just, it's a lot of fun. They're, they're excited, like balancing on all these things. You gotta move around and all this stuff. We're going up and we get up um, to the second layer and I'm, I'm just watching my kids and I realize like they're moving a lot slower now. think um, they're slowing down and like there's still a smile on their face but it's not quite as pronounced as it once was. Um, And then we make it to the third level. And by the time we get to the third level, like every movement is like two inches at a time. And there's no smile. And both of them actually say the words to me, this is scary. (laughs) Like, it just strikes me how, like, you were so excited when we were down there looking up at this. And now we're up here and like, You've just, you lost all that joy. <laughs> it's just gone. And then we, we make our way back down. And the lower we get, the more excited they become. And so we get on the ground, like, that was the coolest thing ever. And it was so exciting and all this stuff. And the joy has returned. I was like, what is that? Like, you, you map out the joy. And it's like, it's way up here. And then you go up there, and it's way down here. And then you come down here, and it's way up here. And it was just this wonderful thing. Like, I was never scared. No, no. Like, my son, he's never going to admit to being scared. But it's just crazy to me how the thing that brought joy and excitement on the ground robbed them of joy as they actually participated in it. As they went up higher, the thing that brought joy was now robbing them of joy. Joy is the theme of this week of Advent, that we want to have joy. But joy can be given and it can be taken. And we so long for full, complete joy that is consistent. And yet we experience this ebb and flow of joy that it comes and it goes, the same thing that can bring joy, can rob others of it. And did you know that it's the same thing as what Advent is? The Advent, or this Latin coming or arrival, that we celebrate in the season that God, the Son, put on human flesh and stepped into his own creation, creator, setting up tent to dwell among his own creation. The God has become a man. And as he did that, for some, it brought such joy that thing that brought great joy for some also stole joy from others. God coming could bring great joy and could also rob others of joy. So look at Matthew chapter two with me, starting in the first verse. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Where is he? These wise men come, and I mean, you just imagine they're kind of like shock and awe. They're like they show up. They are convinced they have followed the star. They've followed the star, convinced like the king of the Jews has been born. Like we're here to worship him, and they arrive in Israel, where all the Jews dwell. Like where is he? Where's the king? Where's your new king that's been born? And you imagine the confusion as people, are, what? What are you talking about? And they're confused. They're like how do you not know? <laughs> like we know. How do you not know? a new king has been born. Who are these people? The CSB calls them wise men, because it's a fairly broad, difficult term to to actually get, Um, but many translations call them wise men, or magi, or even the kings, like often in the nativity, the three kings, the famous song. Um, But these wise men are these magi, as as they're often called. Um, In the Old Testament, Daniel refers to magi with a slightly different term, but he refers to them in the Babylonian Empire, um, and by the New Testament times, magi or this term is a, a kind of a blanket term covering a variety of different men who engaged in things like studying predictions, dreams, magic, and astrology, and so the fact that they're following a star sounds like they're somewhat maybe Zoroastrian. They're, they're, they're into astrology, astronomy, looking at the heavens, trying to determine things, and so they are convinced because of this star that a king of the Jews has been born, and so many um, we, we just don't know, honestly, what the, the events were, but there's some pretty solid ideas of planets aligning to create a new seeming star in the sky or all kinds of things that would happen around this time. But they would interpret those as the king of the Jews being born, which is remarkable. And so you have to wonder, how would they know anything about a king of the Jews? And so some believe, well, when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Begna, when, when the Babylonian exile took place, they surely would have taken some of the scriptures there. And these guys, who would try to study and know about all these things, probably held on to them. And so they're thinking like, wow, we, we know something about that. It's happening. Let's go check it out. We don't know for sure, though. What we do know is wise men from the east. And so if you look east of Israel, Pastor Tim explained this last week in communion, but east of Israel would have been things like Babylon, Persia, or the Arabian Desert. All of these things are not so good and friendly to Israel and their history. Um, these would have been people that largely throughout their history have been known as enemies. Um, They take them into captivity. They attack them. They they do hurtful things to them. These are not people that you would expect to show up for God's arrival. These are not people that you would think of as being familiar with God's temple, God's ways, God's chosen people, Israel. And yet here they are, foreign people arriving to say, your king has been born. To which the people are like, what? (laughs) Our king? And so they come here following a star This is, um, most scholars believe, a fulfillment of Isaiah 63, where it says, nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. Look at verse three. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Disturbed. you imagine? Someone shows up and says, hey, your king was just born. Where is he? My king. What, What? The puppet King Herod? Wait, but I'm king. No, 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 like the king of all these people. They're deeply disturbed. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Clearly, he knows what they're talking about. Messiah is the coming king. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Matthew, again, is telling us the historic advent of Christ, and yet as he's doing this, he's also showing this as a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, this is Micah 5.2 that is quoted there. It's probably in uh, quotation marks or maybe bold in your version. However, it shows itself to be a quotation of Old Testament scripture. Um, this is Micah 5.2. Um, listen, listen carefully. It says, Bethlehem Ephrathah. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Do you see how Matthew actually changed it a bit? It's not just one will come to rule over you. Matthew says, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew adds the shepherding language because he sees us and clearly wants us to tie together this Messiah who has come to the fulfillment of all the Davidic promises. David, who was the high king of Israel, who is like at the top, like David has promised one of your sons, your seed, that will be on the throne forever. So we're waiting for that one. And David was what? A shepherd. A shepherd. And David wrote the 23rd Psalm that has always captivated the people of God to think of God himself, the Lord, as our shepherd, to lovingly lead us. And everything that the the 23rd Psalm gives us is this hope of who is the one to come. And Matthew ties us together and wants to see, yes, the one who's coming to rule is the shepherd king. He's the one from the line of David. He's the true and greater David. He's the shepherd of our souls. He's the one who comes lovingly to lead us not to oppress us, but to lovingly lead us. This is the true king. Again, to be contrasted with, but, but we have this king here. This guy, Herod, he calls himself king. This is deeply disturbing to Herod, because I'm king. And you're saying there's another king. And this is the true king, not a puppet king. So we keep going, verse nine. After hearing the king, they went on their way, because remember he said, hey, go find him, Bethlehem. Bethlehem's where he's supposed to be born. You you go ahead and find him and come tell me because I want to go worship him too. So after hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. The wise men, the Magi, found him. Uh, If if you're looking at a map of of ancient Palestine, Israel, uh, Bethlehem is only about five miles from Jerusalem. So they show up in Jerusalem. Here's King Herod, all these people. Like, this is the temple. The temple's here. Like, they should know, where's the king? Where's your new king? What? We don't know anything about this we've been following this star, your king has been born. And everybody's in confusion. They're disturbed, like, what is this? And Herod, most of all, oh, what? Where's he? Sp- okay, Bethlehem, yeah, go, go find him. Tell me, because I'm gonna, I'm gonna go worship him too. And they go, and they find him, just five miles away. They see Jesus. And what does it say happens when they see this baby? They fall on their knees, and they worship. But what is the emotion they're experiencing? What is the state of their heart? overwhelmed with joy. You imagine, they they did not grow up hearing the law of God and all the promises of the prophets. And yet somehow they know there's something to this. There's one who's coming that we should worship and we've shown up because we followed the star. We know he's here. And they find him and arriving in this place, they fall on their knees and they worship this baby. They worship and they're overwhelmed with joy. That Jesus's arrival, for them, could overwhelm them with joy, and yet deeply disturb Jerusalem and King Herod. And so, the Magi, the wise men, worshiping, offer gifts, and they give these three gifts: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And as they do this, um, they, many many have interpreted that I mean there must be three of them. It's not; it doesn't say that. We don't know how many of them there were. Um, it's it's a nice song, "We Three Kings of Orient and all this stuff, but. We have no idea. Probably wasn't three, but there were three gifts that were given. And uh, a lot of people try to speculate well, what, what do these gifts mean? Is this a prophetic reference to his death and, and embalming all this? We don't know, is the honest answer. But what we do know is this is a common practice of the ancient Near East that when you were showing up, knowing and fully expecting to be presented to someone who was superior to you, you brought gifts. And they brought gifts, knowing that this. King born, a baby, was superior to them. And so they come with these very costly gifts and they worship. But they're warned about Herod. Because you have the guy who said, hey, go find him because I too want to go worship him. Come back and tell me where he is. They're warned in a dream. Nah, don't do that. Something's up with this guy. He's not responding in the same way. So 13, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up. Take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. God um, speaks to this angel and and tells Joseph, Hey, you got to get out of here. It's not safe. Herod does not want to come worship this new king. He wants to kill him so you've got to get out of here. And so they flee to Egypt. This is providential safekeeping. But again, it's also fulfillment of scripture, as Matthew wants us to see and have confidence and assurance. This is the promised one. Now, this goes back to the book of Hosea. As one of the prophets, Hosea would have these words recorded, out of Egypt I called my son. Um, and there's a lot that we could unpack in that, that Jesus is the true Israel. And so all this stuff comes together. But be confident. This is really the Messiah. And all these events are providentially playing out in such a way that we'd say, That's just impossible. That's absolutely impossible for this to just be coincidence, that this child is born in this place at this time in this manner and all these things take place in such a way that it's exactly what scripture said would happen. And for some, it brings great joy, but for others, it robs them of it. It steals it. Speaking of, look at Herod, verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and a great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Herod responds to the advent of Christ, the Messiah, this newborn king with rage and fury. That baby has come to steal my joy. Convinced that power, apparently, is what brought him joy. This is a threat to my power. And so he does his best to kill this child. As you imagine, he is familiar with these promises. He's familiar with this religion. He knows the promises of the prophets. He knows what they're all waiting for. And now he's in this position of power, and he hears that the one who has been promised to come has come. And his response is, kill him. And so he kills all the boys in this region, two years old and under. What tragedy. This is heartbreaking. Like, this is not what you want to hear with a Christmas story, to hear of countless babies slaughtered. But it is the truth of the Christmas story, that the arrival of Jesus meant great joy, overwhelming joy for some, and yet meant great sorrow and the robbing of joy for others. Because you have this, this guy who's clearly insane, Herod the Great, as he's called. He's born uh, sometime around 73 BC, and he's named the Judean king by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. Within three years of being named this puppet king, he has just completely destroyed any opposition to his power. He has the Roman army at his behest. He's take care of this, so no one can stand against him at this point. So he does this, crushing opposition. He's actually a pretty outstanding administrator historically. He accomplished a lot. Uh, A very excellent, uh, skilled, successful politician. And yet, he grew more and more paranoid as his life went on. He seemed to literally be crazy. Um, He grew paranoid to the point of killing many of his close associates. Um, It's it's said that he killed his own wife and at least two of his own sons. Just scared that they're trying to take power from him. He could not stand the thought of someone taking power from him. This king could not bend the knee to the true king. And joy was robbed from him. I was on a plane uh, some years ago and um, the virtual reality, the augmented reality of those games that you could play apparently unplugged were, were kind of new and on the scene. And, and so I'm on the plane and you know, I, I don't know if this is true for you. I think it's true for all of us. But like you never have a neutral flight. And so you're like, wow, way better than my expectations or wow, that was awful. Like, there's just, there's not a way to just get on a plane and be like, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't hear any, yeah, okay. So, I, that's my experience. I'm on a plane, and it starts off, and it just became really clear from the get-go. Like, this is going to be one of those bad experiences. Um, I'm, I, like, I want to be on the window. I, I don't care if it means I've got to wait a few more minutes. Or I, like, I like to look out. I like to see the world and all this stuff. Um, I'm not in a window seat. I'm not even in an aisle seat. I'm in the middle, like, between people. Yeah, right? Now you feel me. Now you understand. Okay, so I'm in, I'm in the middle. Um, they're assigned seats, and it's just like, it's gonna be a long flight, and all this stuff. This kid next to me, like, he's separated from his parents, so he's, like, perpetually looking back and yelling and all this stuff, and she's like, oh just calm down, like, it'll be over soon, I promise. Like, he's getting all these toys on and stuff, and next thing you know, he pulls out this headset and puts this headset on that's, like, way out here, and he's got these joysticks, and you know what happens. We're already, like, I'm a wee little man, but I'm already, like, kind of crammed in here, and this kid is just like going to town, like, whoa, wow, like, he's in his own world, like, he's got these goggles on, he has no clue what's around him, and he's all in my space, I like my space, and he's in it, and he's just robbing me of joy, for the sake of his own joy, like, he, this is what he does, and I'm just like, oh, this is awful, how can you be so narrow-sighted, you're like, literally, you have this thing on, where this is all you can see, this is your world, you have no clue what's around you, and no care for the effect you're having on others, because it's about your joy. And I'm not trying to just destroy this little kid. But it was is, it is really good for me to think, like how much am I living like that? Like I put on my view of the world, and I just go for my joy, and don't care what it costs others. And this is Herod. Herod thought that he had to rob others of joy for the sake of his own. That for me to have joy, I have to rob you of joy. Because everyone is ultimately in pursuit of joy. Like, we can get into some philosophy here, but every decision you make is bound to whatever you treasure most. You are always going to decide in accordance with what you value most. Every decision, even the hard decisions, you're making that hard decision because of something that says this is worth it. Ultimately, it is worth it. It's bound up, everything you say, everything you do is bound up in what you value most. And what do you value most? It's the way God created us, that at some level we're all hedonists. You're in pursuit of joy. And so you will value most whatever you get most joy from. And so what you think is going to bring you joy, you're going to pursue, and it may be at the expense of others' joy. Herod did this. Like putting on those binoculars, this becomes our vision. Whatever you value most, whatever you treasure most, is going to frame everything the way you see the whole world. You have to ask, what is it that is actually painting my reality? And am I like a kid in an airplane just going to town because I've got these things on and it's, it's my joy and I don't care that it's costing others their joy. And Herod so fits this, its power that he treasures. And so he'll do whatever it takes, robbing others of joy to secure his own power. He thinks that it's going to bring him joy. The thing that brought joy for some, the arrival of Jesus, overwhelming joy, great joy, but then robbing Herod of joy. And so Herod in turn starts to rob others of joy as you hear a voice in Ramah weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. And again, you should see that set aside as this is a quote from the Old Testament. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31. That in context, what's happening, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's a prophet for God as the people of God are led out of the promised land and into captivity. As they go into exile. And why are they going into exile? As their children are being slaughtered and thus the moms are in the streets crying, wailing, weeping as their children are kidnapped or killed in front of them. Why are they crying? Why are they going into exile? Why would God allow this? Because this is what they were told would happen. If they broke the covenant, away you will go. The covenant was, if you will follow my commands, you will be my people and I will be your God. I will bless you. But if you break my commands, if you break this covenant, then curses come on you and you will be taken away from all that I've promised you. This was this old covenant, this Mosaic covenant of the law. And yet Jeremiah 31 is watching the reality of this take place, that children are being taken from their mothers and their mothers are wailing. They're crying and they refuse to be consoled, rightly so. And yet, in the midst of this chapter, is this beautiful promise of a new covenant is coming. This is happening because you broke this covenant. This is happening because of your sin. This is happening because you failed to measure up. This is because you have fallen short of the glory of God. This is because you have rebelled against God. You have disobeyed God. You are a wretched sinner. I am a wretched sinner. And we don't measure up, we could never be good enough. And so the consequence of that is death. And these mothers watch literal death take place for their children. They refuse to be consoled. And yet Jeremiah speaks on behalf of God and says another promise is coming. Another covenant is coming. Put your hope here in the same chapter, speaking of this new covenant where God will write his name on our hearts. That God himself will make us his people and will keep us from turning away. That God will do every part of this. And this is Jesus. The one who says, as he takes the cup, instituting what we call communion of the Lord's Supper and says, this is the new covenant. The covenant of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That Jesus is the new covenant. This is a covenant in grace that you could never earn your way into God's favor. You could never do good enough. And yet he says, I love you. and I'll make you my own. You will be with me forever, my people. And in that chapter, he says, your mourning your mourning will turn into joy. This great grief that you experience will turn into great joy. And so as Matthew is tying together the prophet Jeremiah and the spoken words of this old covenant becoming a new covenant, he's saying, here's the arrival of this. That as these mothers are devastated because Herod is insane and has slaughtered all your children, he says, these tears are the last tears that are to be cried under this old covenant. Your mourning will turn to joy because joy is Jesus. He has arrived for us. Our joy is Christ. He has come to be our true joy. Sorrow turns to joy because there's a new covenant. Tears in Bethlehem marking the end of Tears Shed because the gospel is true. And just like those angels proclaimed, he is Jesus, Yeshua. He is Emmanuel. God with us. He is the Lord, is salvation. He has come to save his people from their sins. Everything the old covenant just pointed out, like an x-ray machine to say, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken. You better not put your hope in yourself because you're broken. But what can the x-ray machine do to save you, to fix the broken bone? Nothing. It just says you're broken. It's to point you to the fact that you need something else, you need someone else. And the gospel is, he has come. God himself has come born of a virgin, sinless. He would live a sinless life. He would be the ultimate, final, perfect sacrifice on our behalf, taking our place on a cross where he died, taking our sin, our shame, all of the wrath of God poured out on himself so that we would not have to endure that. He is our freedom. He is our joy. He loves you. And he's offering you everlasting life. If you would repent, you would turn from your sin and you would turn to the one who has the power to save you from it. Believe that he died and he rose again, victorious over sin and death. Trust him. See that he is your joy. The one who came to bring us joy. It demands a response. Don't be like Herod. We we put ourselves in the position of king in so many ways. I do this, um, I I don't even know how many times a day, countless times, where I think it's about me and what I want and anything that infringes on my joy, my pleasure, oh no, stand against it. Hold the wall, hold the line. Here comes a real king. And Herod says, nope, put an end to that. No, we bend the knee like the wise men. We pay homage to the true king of kings. And that is our great joy that's overwhelming joy. We worship him and see that he is our full joy. It demands a response because if he is truly Messiah, if he is truly son of God, you cannot be neutral or indifferent to his arrival. You have to respond to him. Is he king or will you refuse him? Will you reject him as king? Will he bring you great joy or will he bring you absolute terror? Because the day of the Lord is coming. He has come once in the advent and yet advent is also about seeing that he's coming again. He's coming again with king of kings and lord of lords written down his thigh, a sword coming out of his mouth and fire in his eyes and at his word, slaughter, blood flowing to the horse's bridle, that he is the lord of armies. He is not to be trifled with and he demands a response. But the beauty of that, while he is absolutely terrifying, he is wonderful. He is glorious and loving. He loves you. And he came here to make a way for you to be made right with God. So will you be right with him? Will you believe him? Will you embrace this joy that he has come to share with you? His joy is meant to be shared. As we conclude, I want you to consider the relational nature of joy. It is meant to be shared. I saw an Amazon commercial and I'm not usually one to think, oh, great, commercials, such, such truth. But it ended with this little <laughs> statement. Joy is meant to be shared. I was like, I'm preaching that Sunday. <laughs> it is. It's meant to be shared. It's relational. You are meant to share joy. Together, church, beloved, we are meant to share joy together. To be together in joy. But I have to ask are we marked by real joy? Because I think culturally, and I'm not saying this is true of us necessarily as a church, but I so don't want it to be. But culturally, what is true is. We think joy is finding and securing whatever fits me and mine. How often do you hear, whether even, even if it's picking a church, I'm just going to go with what I think is best for my family. What's best for, I, need, I need this kind of church. And, and here's the thing. The Spirit of God arranges the church, the body as he sees fit. I pray that you are exactly where God wants you to be. And I don't want to hear condemnation in this, but there may be some repentance that's necessary. That the way of Jesus to be in a church is not to say, What fits me? <laughs> it's not, how can I serve these people? How can I rally around these people and say, I belong here and you belong here? That we are committed to each other. It's sacrificial love and commitment to a particular group of people. Say, like, We covenant together. And this is why we value membership. Say, like, We want you to be a gospel partner, a partner in the gospel to say, I'm putting my name on that paper. Like when I sign those papers so I can get a car or so I can get a house or whatever, to say, I mean this that I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you every day. I'm going to serve you. And you do that with me. This has great value because it's joy meant to be shared. A community of joy is going to look like sacrifice. But you will need that sacrifice from others as well. And so we come into this joyfully like Jesus. We belong to Jesus. So consequently and beautifully, we belong to each other. We have to care about each other's joy. How do you do that? You point to Jesus constantly. It's actually really simple. There are going to be times where we're like, I don't know what to do in this situation. It's not cliche to just say, let's consider Jesus. When you don't know how to respond to the great pain or hurt or confusion in someone else's life, it is not cliche to just step in and say, let's look to Jesus because he is our joy. You point to joy by pointing to Jesus. Jesus is our joy. That's like architecture. Um, it's, it's no secret. We would love to have a building of our own. I thought I'd hear a lot of amens. Amen. If you're on the facilities team or anything, like, there's a lot of work that goes into this. There is. And I would love for you to step into helping with that. But we would love to have our own home. And we, we call it like um, Jesus was on a search and rescue mission to seek and save the lost. And we too are now called into that. And so we want a home base. If you have a search and rescue effort, it's good to have a home base. So like, this is where we rally together, get our marching orders, so we know, hey, you're going here, you're going here, you're going here. here here's a way to help you in this. In this like, you get equipped, you come back together, and you rest. All the things of a search and rescue operations base is what we want in a building so that we have a place to come together, regroup, and then be sent out missionally every single week. If we want that. We're praying for it. I would ask you to pray for it. And we're asking you also to step into that practically by giving towards it. We have a goal of raising two hundred and fifty thousand dollars within three years. Um, we're a year into that. I would ask you, as you consider year in giving, would you give to that? Because that would be tremendously helpful in the mission Jesus has given to us. because we think about a building, and you think about architecture, that um, as you build a church building, so to speak, and you look and you see like these old ones if you've ever traveled to Europe, and they're just like so ornate, and sometimes it's like, that makes me uncomfortable like what <laughs> like." How many, how many could be served by the money put into that? And, and like, there's, there's this weird dance you have to play. Of like, It's not wrong to put money into things like that, but also like, you can't neglect mercy and justice. And so there's, there's all these factors that come into it. But when you go into these old, beautiful buildings, and they're almost always really tall. Have you noticed that? If you know anything about architecture, you know like, high vertical lines do something to us. Um, The reason that most of our TVs now are no longer squares but are horizontal, they're in landscape mode, is because your eyes naturally see across more than they see up and down. And so it's easier for us to watch something that is across. But in the same way, sometimes you want to be directed upward. And lines that go vertical help us. They give you a sense of transcendence. That's why most theaters and so forth black out the ceiling because you don't know where the top of this thing is. And it helps you feel a sense of grandeur. And that's beautiful in the architecture of a building, and one day, like I pray that we get to dream up those things and, and do that for beloved. But what is true today is that the building is not the church. We now are the temple of God. the Holy Spirit dwelling in and among us, as the people of God. We are the architecture that the world gets to see. Do we live a life of joy? that is vertical and radiant and calls others to see us and say, look at beloved. And by looking at beloved, I see a great God. I see a great glorious God that when I see them, my eyes are drawn upward. And so we set our eyes on things that are above and watch as the world follow suit because joy is meant to be shared. We want the world to know the one who has come down has condescended, meaning he came down and to be with. He draws us back upward. He has brought heaven to earth. He has reconciled us to be a joy-filled people. It's meant to be expressed and shared. As Matthew, this is like the start of his book as, as he shows us like, who are the first people that show up recognizing the king of the Jews, people that are not Jews. Like the nations are coming to him and they're overwhelmed with joy and they worship him and then they return. And you know how Matthew closes out? As you get to the end of this book, he says, now you, church, go to them that he cares about all of them. Joy is meant to be expressed. Let's go to the nations. Let's start with your actual neighbor and let's go across this planet. Let's send some teams to Derek and Ray in Uganda. Let's send some teams to the Smiths in Tokyo. Let's go places. I pray regularly that some of you would actually leave here and go be missionaries elsewhere. But every one of us is called to be missionaries here too. So let's live like that, sharing this joy, because joy-filled people bring about more joy-filled people. Let's share joy. It's not just joy together, though, with us and with others. It's joy primarily with God. Joy primarily with God. These words haunt me, actually, if I'm honest. They haunt me, and I I have so many questions about them, um, but but I want to share what I have learned. This is Jesus uh, speaking in John 15 as we close out. He says, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Jesus says our joy could be complete. And on a daily basis, I ask, What is complete joy? What is that? I so want it. Because joy seems to be this ebb and flow thing. And what did he say? I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. If you want full joy, it's actually the joy of Jesus that is full joy. In context, he just gave us the beautiful teaching on the vine and the branches. What's your job? Just remain in him. Just be with him. Just be attached to him. You can do nothing apart from him. True joy is just being with God, who is our joy. So be with him. See that he is the fulfillment, the completion of our joy. It's union with Christ that completes our joy. My daughter, I told you she just turned seven. She turns seven, freaks me out. I don't like it. But she's still daddy's little girl. And so I have this thing where um, the last thing she gets at night is a daddy kiss. And daddy kisses are magical. Don't tell her otherwise. They're magical and she needs them. She needs a daddy kiss. And there's a big wind up. Like it's, it's this whole thing. Like it's, it's very dramatic because I'm like that. But she needs that daddy kiss at night. But she also wakes up. I have the privilege of waking her up most mornings. My wife is way nicer. Um, she'll walk in, being a good mom, and just like turn the light on gently and walk away. Like They can kind of like slowly rise to the occasion. Like, no, 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 no. I'm waking them up. Yeah. But I come in there with her, and the first thing I do is I quietly creep over there, and I just start kissing the mess out of her. And at first, it's rah, rah, all this stuff, but I have a beard, and it tickles her, and then, like she gets beard kisses where I just... Yeah, it's, it's this whole thing. But like, I just cover her in kisses and she gets all the daddy kisses. And eventually she very quickly sw- switches from like frustrated, annoyed, like confused, like waking up like, what is this? I'm, I'm attacked by a hamster. I don't know what it is. And, and it suddenly becomes this massive smile on her face. And I do this because I want joy for her. I want her to wake up with joy and to know that she is loved. But do you know, that's also for me that her joy becomes my joy. It's time to start the day when I got that smile from her. And do you know it's the same with God? That he wants to complete your joy. He wants to step in, wake you up, and just say, hey, look at the beauty of this life. Look at all the things that I've done for you. Look what I've given to you. Look at joy. Jesus has come to be your salvation. You get to be with God forever. Do you see the way that joy is complete? And then that makes him happy. And he's happy to do that for you. Joy is meant to be shared. Share it with each other and share it with God. Will you believe this good news and then will you share it? The band's gonna come up and let's pray. Thank you, God. You are blessed. You are happy. You are joyful. There's nothing that could actually take that from you. Even as we see you with real passions, Jesus, in your humanity, you are divine. You are perfect, so we thank You that You came to give us Your complete joy. It is You. We look to You to be our joy. Help us to be like these wise men who would recognize You as Who You are, and be overwhelmed with joy in this season and forevermore. And not be like Herod. We recognize You are the true King. You're overall, You're majestic and glorious. And God, we love You. We worship You. We praise You. We thank you for this great salvation that brings us joy, that we get to be with you, our joy. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We enter in-